0: Osiris.
1: There's a lot that I hope to accomplish with the book, but at the end of the day, if one person picks up this book and reads it and feels like, okay, maybe I actually do belong in country music, then that feels like a win to me. There are a lot of people out there that love country music with all their hearts and don't feel like country music is going to love them back so they don't bother and that to me is like a tragedy
2: you know hi this is maggie rose you're listening to salute the songbird on osiris media salute the songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard and everyone has a seat at the table Welcome to this week's episode of Salute the Songbird. I'm your host, Maggie Rose, and this week I'm coming to you from the road because, yes, it is summertime and tour season is upon us, which I'm absolutely thrilled about. It's been so great to see you guys out there. And I am also very thrilled about my guest today. She's a friend of mine and an incredibly accomplished journalist talking about Marissa Moss. Let me read a little bit from Marissa's bio just so you can... of get an idea of what her body of work has consisted of she's born and raised in new york city she's a freelance journalist currently residing in east nashville tennessee and contributes frequently to rolling stone american songwriter billboard npr the nashville scene has had bylines in fader nylon pitchfork entertainment weekly the guardian politico teen vogue and more she also won the chet flippo rolling stone award for excellence in country music journalism and her article, Country Radio's Dark Secret, History of Sexual Harassment and Misconduct for Rolling Stone Country, is widely regarded as a touchstone in Nashville's Times Up Reckoning. But today we're going to talk in depth about her new book that just came out on May 20th, 2022. It's called Her Country, How the Women of Country Music Became the Success Story They Were Never Supposed to Be. It's an excellent read. I encourage you all to go get a copy of your own. But now let's talk to the author herself. Marissa Moss. She speaks truth to power. She tells the story of what women in country music have had to deal with for generations. She's provided a platform for women like Maren Morris, Casey Musgraves, Margo Price, and yours truly. She talks about the process for writing the book and where it's left her, where she finds hope, now knowing that certain institutions will never change. We talk about country music's complex history and how difficult it is to change. Through her book, she shows us that there's enough room for everyone in country music. We need to just keep working on opening up the genre and creating the space for all. A theme we're pretty familiar with here at Salute the Songbird. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the incredible Marissa Moss. I am so excited to talk to you after reading this book. It was like, I couldn't put it down except for when I couldn't see through the tears as like they were welling up. Oh my God. Like even talking about it, it was just, it was so good. And it did feel like just kind of ripping open a lot of old wounds. And I, I called so many people or just texted them as I was reading it because you just made me want to reach out to people that it just like brought up all these memories that I think I didn't repress but you know you definitely kind of file them away a little bit it was just it was so beautifully done and I think I'm always such a fan of you but it was just an act of bravery to do and I could tell how much you researched and all the people that you listed that you spoke to so I want to talk about the book of course but I also want to talk about Marissa and you and what brought you to this path and this vocation to be such a truth seeker. And a little bit of that is also in the afterward, which I love the combination of New York and Texas that Uh, makes you up. I didn't really know that about you. It's, it's just such a phenomenal. Thank you for saying that. So it like it
1: blows my mind that people are reading it and taking anything useful from it and just i'm really bad with words when i'm talking about that like which is weird because i'm supposed to be i guess that's my job to be good with words
2: most of the time but well i think it's interesting that you said that even just about your writing and then how words are hard to come by just in daily conversation because i think that a lot of people artists songwriters that i speak to find the same assistance with music like amanda Shire is on this show she's like there's so many more colors to use with music because you have these melodies to shade in those gray areas where words fail and i would imagine that with you that kind of intimacy of just you and the page would be a similar structure to what people find when they're sitting down to write a song you don't need to present it like you present it when it's ready and when you've been able to revise it and edit it and i think that's just your version of finding how you want to speak your truth and it's just so beautifully done um but i i read it in maybe 24 hours uh her country by marissa moss it was uh just so beautifully assembled it's not linear the how you told the story which i really like because it jumps around and you see how much this one event can cause a ripple and how far that ripple can carry. You know, we talk a lot about Keith Hill and the tomato gate, but you chronicle so well, all these things that led up to this unrest. And yes, he was the fall guy. And you and I have spoken outside of this episode about Keith Hill and what that did for so many artists i think we saw a lot of artists begin to make their best music because they realized the futility of the effort of making country music in an environment where someone would so openly say you know this is the algorithm or this is the the format doesn't want to hear that so it's just no point and people just started to create their own paths and that's in a really simplified way what this whole book is about but you have Two events, I think, in your career that would probably make you really fearful. And one of them was the piece that you wrote about all of the -the behind-the-scenes sexual harassment that was happening on radio tours. And then I think it would be this book, because you very bravely talk about radio DJs, the powers that be, music executives, label heads. um, And you're, you're truthful about it. Do you feel any of that similar fear that you've kind of told me about feeling when you released this Rolling Stone piece with this book?
1: It's different. I mean, when, when that piece came out, I really was scared. Like I just didn't know what to expect. I I can't remember if I've told you this story before, but I kind of went to my husband the night before and I was like, what if we like have to move? Like, and (laughs) he was like, well, Oh, well, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, I just didn't know, like, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if like, I was going to get a bag of shit at my doorstep. I didn't know, like, what would, I just honestly didn't know. And I made peace with the fact that I didn't care at a certain point. Cause I stood by, I kind of was like, that's how I knew it was ready to run. Like right. once I felt like I didn't care anymore because I knew it was strong enough, like, I knew it was solid. I knew the reporting was so solid that there was nothing anyone could, you know, they could be mad at me for talking about it. But there was nothing, you know, everything was reported out to the fullest point it could be. And the book is a little bit different because it's, you know, it's it's not a reported piece in the same exact way. I viewed it as reporting as much as I viewed it as storytelling. I stand by it at this point, you know, like, that's just who I am. Like, I'm not, I think people in Nashville know now that, you know, what kind of work I do and what kind of work I believe in. And if I don't get invited to the party, then whatever, like, you know, I don't want to go to that party. (laughs) I don't want to go to any party, but, um, but I stand by it and I believe in it so much that I hadn't really thought about the fear. I mean, it's strange. Like I have other fears, but telling the truth is not one of them.
2: What are some of the fears that you do possess? I mean, I think the typical writer neuroses,
1: I guess, like, you know, you write something, especially if you write something for the internet there's this idea that you could always change something. And I don't, you know, you still have to issue a correction and um, no one's going in there and tweaking pieces that have been published. Um, But I guess knowing in theory that you could do that, but you print something and it's, it's there forever and I can't change it and it is what it is forever.
2: That's scary to me. But you can certainly expound upon this because as I read it, It feels really triumphant i mean all these stories seem to have that denouement of like started here and ended in a place of improvement but like this story is far from finished i read like i felt like my story was in the subtext of all of these different um phases of these artists careers whether it be the frustration of radio tour to Just the overall frustration of the exclusivity still within country genre, the absolute truth that there are still no women being played on radio. Even the whole objective of the High Women was to get airplay, and that never happened. Like, there's a lot of story left to be written, but just this one piece of history, like, it took so much research for you to document just the progress that we've achieved thus far. So I feel like I'm hoping that you'll get to write another book like this that chronicles us making more leaps and bounds because this should hopefully activate people who don't understand the comments that me or Rissy Palmer would get from that creepy radio guy at those dinners where we had to foot the bill. And I draw a lot of comparisons between your compulsion to write this book and little anecdotes you shared about Marin, where she thought she was ready to leave Nashville and decided that if she removed herself from Nashville, that the progress wouldn't move forward. And talking to Mickey Guyton about leaving country music, it was just not an option because that's where she wanted to be. And if she didn't do it her way, then it would still say the same. So like, it's, it's a vocation and I think something that you have to do as an artist. So I'm glad that those fears didn't deter you from doing that. But the finality of this should only be in the fact that this is the progress made to date. Are you hopeful?
1: Hopeful about different things than I used to be hopeful for. I guess, um, I, I'm no longer hopeful that certain institutions will change. And I mean, I don't even know if that's pessimism, pessimism anymore because it's practicality. I don't know. I mean, I don't have a lot of hope for country radio. I don't have a lot of hope for certain parts of music row or the country music mainstream. Uh, it doesn't mean that I hate all of it or, you know, hate men or whatever like weird things people say to you on the internet. I wouldn't be here if I didn't like love country music with my whole heart. <laughs> I'm hopeful for other things, other ways that artists are finding their paths. So and that's kind of where I wanted to direct the book in that, you know, here are three women finding their paths in country music that are different and not just Banking only on airplay as a means of survival and market share and things like, you know, Black Opry, making space for artists of color gives me a lot of hope. And looking, you know, watching how your career has evolved gives me a lot of hope. Finding, you know, artists finding their voice outside of country music gives me hope. And, you know, some things I think I just lost hope with.
2: I've put that energy into new areas, I guess, that I feel hopeful for. But that is practicality. And yeah. back to that whole idea of Tomato Gate being such a catalyst for so many people. It's to circumvent. I think we all just kind of saw the writing on the wall that this was not going to be an effort that yielded any <laughs> fruits. So we found a way to do it. And I think that you really effectively tell that in this story. I mean, and even in your title, the full title, Her Country, How the Women of Country Music Became the Success They Were Never Supposed to Be, pretty succinctly sets you up for seeing how everyone customized their paths. And so I want to talk about Marissa Moss and and why country music having a background being from New York originally. Like what made you want to pursue journalism in this field? Well, journalism,
1: weirdly, was I I wanted to be a music journalist like since I was a kid. I don't I mean, I like collected every single issue of Rolling Stone. I didn't have any talents as a performer or anything, but I love music and I loved writing. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was like super little. And Became weird lately. Just music journalism just became my vision for myself, and I had like periods where I tried to talk myself out of it here and there because it just didn't seem doable. Or you know, especially like it, you know, you leaf through a million issues of Rolling Stone and Spin, and you see like how many women's bylines, not very many. You know, it just kind of kept that vision is what I wanted, but. Country music is funny. I mean, there's not a lot of, at the time I was growing up in New York, I didn't have a lot of friends that or any friends that listened to country, like country music. Wasn't part of any of our lives. We listened to Fiona Allen, Tribe Called Quest and, you know, it was fair, <laughs> but I gotten super into the Grateful Dead and that was my, that was my way into country music in a lot of ways. Um, Grateful Dead and Dylan, Bob Dylan, going back and seeing who they were influenced by. But while this was going on, my my dad had a really strong love of country music, 90s country, Shania Clint Black. Um, and he was living in Texas and Austin. So just kind of, I would go there for the summer, like being surrounded by country music everywhere. And I don't know if I was, if it was even like a conscious thing all the time, but... I rode horses and just spent a lot of time out of ranch. and, But my brother also was like, he picked up the banjo and the fiddle and the accordion um, when I was about when I was in high school and played in old time bluegrass bands. He um, got into klezmer music for a while. He's like really diverse body of music that he played. And he sort of, found this niche in New York in the you know I guess would maybe be be like America known as Americana now but would just play old-time gigs at random bars in New York and you know made sure to buy me like Doc Watson double CDs and Yeah. yeah so I guess it was like a lot of converging elements you know it's not like the easy story but then
2: I feel like you were holding a mirror to me throughout this because I also felt like no sense of true belonging to any one uh, guard, I guess. But I think that it made it really clear to me that, I mean, you highlight so many women in this book, but I guess for the purpose of this, Marin, uh, Mickey, and Casey, they all have really kind of erratic paths that got them to where they are. But the one thing is that like you, as a kid, knowing you wanted to pursue music journalism, they were steadfast in their ambitions and what they wanted to do. There's just no direct path to getting to that. And then you come to Nashville and people tell you, this is how we do it. We release songs to radio. So I feel like that would just contradict everything that they had done that you had done to get to where you are. Leading up to that point, I think no one has an easy story. So, with you writing this story, when did the inception of the idea for this book come about? Because it seems like you've been known you were going to, you've been knowing that you were going to write this years ago and that you were like an eyewitness to so many of these huge events that happened in all of those women's careers throughout the book.
1: I immediately gravitated towards these stories when I moved to Nashville about a decade ago. Um, and I, you know, a lot of the reporting and and writing in the book comes from work that I'd done, you know, in that time, not specifically for the book or anything. I'm just sort of absorbing and being around and taking notes and, and so much of it, I didn't know where it was going. I don't, think at any point I had said oh this is gonna eventually go into a book strangely there was one Casey show at the basement that I it's like a passing mention in the book but I had gone to that show and I came home and I took notes and I for no reason like and I went back and I looked and I was like why did I take notes on that show I wasn't on assignment like there was no reason for me to do it really and I keep everything obsessively like I take a million notes. I then take a photograph of my notes and I email them to myself and I put them in a folder. Wow. But I started talking to an agent like six months before the pandemic. And she was like, Oh, have you ever, you know, really like your reporting. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, yes, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know like when the time would be. And she was like, She said something to me that I've shared with a lot of friends ever since. She was like, this is, you know, this is your flag to plant. Like, and if you don't, someone else is going to do that. And how would you feel like when you see that flag in the sand and it's not yours? And it's like, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I I could see in that moment, I kind of got this vision of like some dude swooping in. Like a year later, and being like, oh, this is, you know, women in country music. This is a hot topic. Like, I'll write a, a book on it and he'll swoop in from wherever, you know, spend two months in
2: Nashville, write
1: the story, fly out. And, uh,
2: and that won't be the right story. They will not have been at the Casey Musgrove Show at Basement or watching Margot Price at Madonna's. Like, even the growth of the little East Nashville co op you got to witness. So I can't think of anyone telling the story better than you or other than you. I love that she kind of motivated you to take it for yourself.
1: You know, it, it meant a lot, of, lot to me that it, like this era of country music, because women aren't on country radio as much as nearly as much as any of us would like, that there was a way to kind of preserve the history of what also was happening at the same time. So like, you know, usually we go back and we look at the radio charts to see what's going on in country music at the time. You know, you pull up the charts from the 80s and you look at the top 10 and that can give you a sense of what was going on. And, and I don't think we know that that doesn't reflect what's going on in country music now. You can't look at the charts to see what was really happening. And this is part of what was really happening.
2: Absolutely. Well, and just the causation of it all you are able to draw lines that date back to Shania Twain. Of course, the the whole verb of getting Dixie-chicked is, or as they're called now, the chicks, and just how the implications of that rippled all the way to even today. I certainly remember being deterred from speaking about any hot-button topics that might polarize my audience and it was just like the antithesis of who I am who all of us were and we wonder why there wasn't a steady emergence of people who had something to say like that we were all kind of living in fear and like there is just a million reasons that all of these trends were born that you're able to explain really well and I think you said this is not about you as a person being the author of this, but it is, because you were going to be the only person who could handle it with care, and we all need that to benefit from that, and I think a lot of female artists will benefit from what you're exposing with this story. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Marissa, and on a rare occasion, I'm coming to you on this walk and talk from the golf course, which is not my normal location to, to check in with you guys from, but I'm with my drummer Taylor, and we're having a good time and blowing off some steam, hitting it pretty well, um, and you know, after some of the topics in this conversation, it's probably good for one to blow off some steam, but i loved this book i enjoyed reading it just because i know that my story is very much in the subtext of the story that marissa is telling but so is every one of our songbirds i mean you can see just how those struggles are shared by us all and while i enjoyed the book because of Marissa's beautiful writing. There is a lot about it that I don't enjoy and that I rebuke about our industry, but I think it's still such an important read. And the silver lining is that all of these women circumvented their challenges and found success in a way that was unique to them. So I know when you read it, even though you might not be a musician yourself, you're gonna see yourself in this story too. So let's get back to my conversation and hope that I don't totally blow it on the last nine. Say hi, Taylor. Hi guys. <laughs> I wanna know just the nitty gritty about how you got into the position that you are at as a writer and your, your career and everything. Um, from New York and and Austin, I suppose.
1: I grew up in New York City, obviously. And my dad moved to Austin and my mom was in New York. I was in Boston for a little while, but ended up back in New York and went to NYU. Graduated after 9-11 in lower Manhattan when the economy was not so great. Um, So I took a lot of crappy jobs that, you know, the crappy jobs we all take after college, I guess. You know, magazine jobs at the time were very scarce, but they also paid so little it was laughable. Um, and, you know, living in Manhattan is already ridiculous enough. I kind of ended up drifting over to communications for a while and working on stories that, you know, after my day job, I would go to concerts and review them a lot of times for free. Um, I moved to LA for a while and back, and moved around. Ended up back in New York, um, doing the same thing. You know, I was I was actually working in political communications. I worked on the campaign against Prop 8. We worked on marriage equality in, in California, and I worked for Maria Shriver for a while. Liberal causes in mm-hmm. California. I was doing that work, and uh, and I really enjoyed it. But I was still writing at night. But I, you know still living in New York, needing to make enough money to pay ridiculous rent. And a decade ago, my husband and I moved to Nashville. He worked in music publishing at the time. We went on a trip just for a weekend and he walked into his office. My husband walked into the, you know, the Nashville office of his, uh, of his company at the time. And they were basically like, Oh, have you ever thought about moving to Nashville? And he was like, Oh yeah, my wife and I really like it. You know, we love country music. And, uh, Called him later that day, asked him to move. And we made the decision that night. Moved a couple months later. Everyone thought we were insane. Like all of our friends in New York are like, what are you doing? Why are you moving to Nashville? Like you're, you know, like six months later, they were all like, oh, you're in Nashville. Like, can we come stay with you? Like, you know, it was like right before the New York Times article came out. That they declared it, it city. Rolling Stone Country launched. I emailed the editor then Bevel right before, you know, 6 months before it launched just kind of like out of nowhere. And I was like I I uh I heard that Longstone Country is launching. I somehow found out that you're the editor. I think, you know, it was written up in in a trade and I asked a friend for her email and she wrote me a really lovely note back and asked for some work samples and some pitch ideas and and I started writing a lot for For Rolling Stone Country you know even before it launched and to this day and you know credit a lot to the folks over there for allowing me the space to do you know good work and that doesn't always fall into the
2: mainstream of country music coverage. I mean Bevel Dunkerley I think it's so cool that she was the editor and she's always been such a big fan of representation of all the talents and country. So I found that to be a really cool fit when I discovered that she was the first person that you contacted at Rolling Stone. You said something that I think was really interesting and it's mentioned several times throughout your book. There's There was a bit of a reluctance on your part to move to Nashville. Friends made jokes about the hee hawness of Nashville. I know that some of the Texas artists, Mickey, Casey, and Marin, felt like they were selling out. The whole um, Nuck Fashville. Am I saying it right?
1: <laughs> Nuck Fashville. Yeah.
2: Yeah. This idea of you're you're selling out. Um, One thing that absolutely horrified me was this one anecdote you made about Mindy McCready, who is no longer with us, and she was an artist during a really difficult time to be a woman, especially one that was uh, aging out in quotes at my age right now. And she was talking about an abusive relationship and people said something like, well, that could be a country song or something really demeaning and minimizing of her very true situation, her plight. And what do you think, in your opinion, coming from New York and being worldly and also a lover of country music is people's aversion to country music then when you moved here. And even now, like these never country people.
1: It's something I think
2: about a lot because
1: when I was in New York and when I told my friends that I was moving here and, you know, I got a lot of jokes I always think that that's, I mean, it has changed. The perception of Nashville has changed. But at the same time, I don't know if it has to the degree that I would have assumed. And there are still so many stereotypes lobbed at country music, at Southern people, at rural people. I mean, you could see it in, you know, even throughout the reaction to... Trump administration and being elected, and how you know, liberal I use coastal is sort of this bucket, it's not the best word, but I think people know what I mean when I say that, right? Um, you know, this view that all southern people are you know, hicks and rednecks, and that hicks and rednecks are bad things to begin with. (laughs) Um, you know, I say that in the book, like that, you know, even just assuming that you know. Quote air quotes ticks and rednecks are pejoratives to begin with mm-hmm. um, and that there's no you know just sort of this dismissal of southern people southern lifestyle, rural lifestyle country lifestyle um, and that translates obviously to country music, and that you know the other day i was re- I was driving in my car and for some reason songs just randomly come on, I guess it's my playlist um, and an Eric Church song came on. Is that it's Devil, Devil? Is the it's like a spoken word poem about the industry. And I was just thinking to myself, like, if some Americana artist, like, branded out of Brooklyn or something, released this, like, what kind of reception would they have? Right. And it would be, you know, received so differently. And there's so many artists like that that I think we put up this wall. You know, like, oh, they're from Nashville. They're only making a certain level of quality art. That really bores me. Like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, you either have to be like super indie country, whatever. I don't even know what the categories are. Insurgent right. country, whatever. And like, hate everything on Music Row. And that's so boring to me. People sort of portray that as like the sophisticated view of country music. And like, right. I, you know, I listen to like Cody Jinks and Tyler Childers, who I love. Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong like only but there's like a certain breed of dude like where that's that that's their deal you know
2: on the other side of this argument there are people who've co-opted the genre like you even talk about the bush administration and at the inauguration how it was all i like two types of music country and western and it was like a costume party that was Mm -hmm. sort of Not taking into account the fact that Loretta Lynn sang about contraception and that there are all these outlaws that we all revere were disruptors. And I, I think it's so funny how even with our native daughters, there's an amazing documentary by a Nashville filmmaker, I can't remember her name, called Hillbilly. And they feature these great writers like Silas House and Amethyst Kia, all these people who were born in the Appalachian region kind of talk about how we've been dismissed. And I think that that's a problem in country music too, which is why people aren't really mining for some of the best music that country has to offer and putting it forward in that format.
1: There's so much nuance in between, you know, and it's and another thing that we do to country artists is we just oversimplify And dismiss. I mean, even you mentioned Loretta, like she, you know, saying about the pill Mm -hmm. and in her memoir, she talks about, you know, her support um, for abortion rights. You know, at the same time, she's also supported Trump and she's done for Republican presidents. And. That's complex. And human beings are complex. Southern people are complex, just like people anywhere else are complex. I wrote some liner notes for a letter Loretta Lynn reissue. And some jerk tweeted to me, like, (laughs) uh, when I shared it being like, how can you, you know, support Loretta Lynn? She supported Trump. And I was like, okay, I don't even know how to respond to that. Like, I mean, One, this is an album that was, you know, I'm talking about the pill. So different time period, in case you check. But I mean, (laughs) there's, she's a complex figure and, you know, a brilliant writer and has different points of view Then we have sort of like put up this wall in country music where, you know, everything is dumped in that category and we can't look any deeper. And even the people who like pretend to, you know, go on a blog or whatever and complain about people politicizing country music because we're talking about it like not wanting to be racist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, my God. They're doing the same thing. It's just like, you know, I can't tell you how many times people come to me and tell me that, like, well, I must hate country music. You know, I'm from New York and I care about it. Not, you know, I talk about its racist past and present or its sexist past and present. And therefore, I hate
2: country music. That couldn't be further from the truth. I feel like it's because of your profound love for country music that you're trying to highlight the nuance.
1: That's the stupidest
2: thing anyone could ever say, too. And I see
1: it. I see it. I'm sure Mickey Guyton or Marin or, you know, anyone gets like a million thousand more times, you know, for every one tweet i get or a journalist gets they probably get seventeen thousand of them especially mickey i don't want to say like someone like mickey loves
2: country music more but i kind of do she does you know like that's it i've had i've asked her point blank why do you put up with it you know and her answer is always consistently because this is the music i want to make and you tell that story so well in this book I guess this is just another part to this question. Like why have we all been so willing to forget the true origins of country music? And you talk about it with our native daughters and what like Rhiannon and Layla and Allison and Amethyst all did to not get airplay, but to just kind of be like, Hey, by the way, our people brought the banjo over and like, these are, the real origins of the music that you all say we don't belong in. Like, what is this willingness to forget that and then look at something like a Nelly FGL collaboration and accept it and refuse Dixie Chicks Beyonce collaboration? Like, what is your answer? Because that's where I become pessimistic. It's just this, can't explain it
1: yeah and i think because the it's hard to explain because the truth is really painful the truth is that it's by design you know like (laughs) people always love to be like oh country music's not racist here's a list of 10 black artists but the truth is that it's you know it's it's by design you know and i i talk about it a little in the book is that you know this this is foundational this was At the beginning of the genre and how it was marketed was created to, you know, with segregation in mind at the core. You know, it was something that was really important for me to talk about in the book and talk about these stories. But at the same time, I think I'm not the one to tell that whole story because I think it's also really important for, you know, especially Black women, I think, to be able to tell their own stories and not come in as a white woman trying to channel their experience
2: um in my you know white privileged view of it well just to clarify I think you left those questions open-ended um -hmm. I think that there is no reconciling all of those truths and you didn't suggest anything other than that, but I just wanted to kind of see how that disconnect makes you feel.
1: I very much have periods where I feel like Marin did when I just say, well, fuck this,
0: you know, like,
1: how can you go another day here? And being a part of something that is so broken. We don't tell these stories because the way country music is now makes a lot of money there's so many layers to it that you could talk about, even down to the kind of wonky stuff when you talk about like consolidation in the telecommunications act. And it's, it's so important because it's at such a high level, you know, this, this exclusion, this discrimination, um, that it's not like a problem that can be solved in any easy way, you know, no lists of musicians or one performance is going to change that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I mean at the same time, you know, you see you see the way people were reacting to Mickey singing at the Super Bowl and thinking about the little girls that see her and what that might inspire in them. It's hard to talk about because it's, you know, it's like It's one of those things where you can go down like a super pessimistic, I don't even know, practical hole, pessimistic slash practical hole, and just end up feeling really shitty. But that's okay. Like, that's an okay thing to feel shitty about. Like, we all should feel really shitty about it. You know, the fact that Mickey's songs weren't being added into rotation after the Super Bowl performance, to me, is just like there's no better case there. Right. You know, like you have, you have someone on the main stage of country music, I'm not of country music, of all, all entertainment, entertainment whatever. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, no, nah, yeah. I'm not going to take this opportunity yeah. to, you know, add whatever, you know, like Rose. She has amazing, like, know. songs that are fun and go like fit right in, you know, that would fit right in with tempo. Like, don't give me that bullshit, you know
2: things like the Opry, which seem to have a much more heightened awareness of the fact that if they want to be around for a long time, as they have been and continue to be around, then they need to look around at the talent that's available to them and give a platform to people like Alison Russell. And I've mentioned Amethyst Kia so many times, but she had her debut there recently and mean it. And you can also still have... You know, long running acts and Jeannie Seeley can be play there the same night as Kelsey Ballerini and it's all great and it makes sense um, but I just don't know like if what are you going to tell her makes so much sense because I don't know that I would have moved to Nashville if I didn't have the wealth of women on the radio that were around when I was really you know impressionable and and assembling my dreams and deciding what I wanted to do. So it's a shame. And I think that this book is a really bright spot in showing that there are alternative ways to have a fulfilling career do what you want to do that deviates from the path that I was put on in a car, unable to move and get out, like on a cable. There was no pivoting, I felt, for a while. It's good for business,
1: too. Like, if you want to boil it down to, like, capitalism or whatever, you know, embracing more, kind, you know, different versions of country music, different artists, different points of view is, like, what ultimately be good for the genre and good for business. Like, if you have to be, you know, if we have to talk about money, which makes the town go round here. Um, Ultimately, you know, it's good for everyone. And like, if there's a way to convince people that this would be good for you financially, like in the long run to let these people in your gate. Right. In Nashville is being very short sight, you know, it's not playing the long
2: game. You know, that's worrisome too on top of everything else. <laughs> yeah. If you're like, if I can appeal to you at all, let me just appeal to your wallets. At least if you don't want to be here as an executive who's responsible for finding and cultivating the best music, then at least consider the financial gain that could come from opening your door a little wider. (laughs) There's a lot that
1: I hope to accomplish with the book. But at the end of the day, if one person picks up this book and reads it and feels like, okay, maybe I actually... Do belong in country music, mm-hmm. then that feels like a win to me. There are a lot of people out there that love country music with all their hearts and don't feel like country music is going to love them
2: back. So they don't bother. And that to me is like a tragedy, you know? I can't wait for people to read this and see the effect that it has on all these young girls and boys and queer people and people of color. And I think that you've shown them that there's a space for them in country music. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marissa Moss. Make sure to give her a follow on Instagram at Marissa R Moss. And I promise you will not regret following her on Twitter as well. She's a really fun person to follow and for God's sake, pick up her book, her country. You will not regret it. To keep up with me and my tour dates, you can go check out my website at www.MaggieRoseMusic.com and follow me on all my socials at Rose. And for exclusive Salute the Songbird content and more, join my With the Band family. Salute the Songbird is brought to you by Osiris Media hosted by Maggie Rose, produced by Austin Marshall, Maggie Rose and Kirsten Cluthy with production assistance from Grace Romer and Kippy Young. Edited by Matt Dwyer, music by Maggie Rose, graphics by Mark Dowd. And to close out this episode, we're going to play one from my album, Have a Seat, called What Are We Fighting For?
3: can stop
0: service